Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. It's summertime, a time for daydreaming, so I thought I'd take a break from the grim topics this podcast has been dealing with the last few months and tell you a true story that has been occupying my mind these last few summery weeks. Fifty years ago, I left an America smoldering in the aftermath of the Kent State Massacre for a junior year abroad. The idea was to bum around Europe with my best friend Dan, and then I would go to Oxford, and he would head to Prague to work with two prominent neurobiologists. We flew to Paris overnight on a charter. Our initial plans were immediately scuppered. A college friend, Diane, had dropped out of Antioch, was living in Paris, had given me her address, and said I should drop by if I needed a place to stay. In the spirit of the age, without consulting her, I invited a couple of other people to join me. We rolled into Paris's morning rush hour, backpacks and duffels smacking into irate commuters every which way we turned, and then marched down Boulevard Port Royal to the building where Diane was living, and traipsed up one flight of steps after another till we reached the very top floor, and there, under the eaves, knocked on her door. Her room, a chambre de bonne, was big enough for a bed, a desk, a chair, and space for someone to roll out a sleeping bag. There was a squat toilet down the hall shared by the half-dozen denizens of the top floor. For a shower, one had to go to the local piscine, the public swimming pool. Diane looked at the four of us and apologized. There just wasn't room. Rush hour thickened. We made our way across town to the east slope of Montmartre by the Sacré-Cœur to a hostel, checked in, and then, wired from sleeplessness and the excitement of being in Paris, we went out for the day. A day or so later, Dan and I headed back to the left bank, to the Port d'Italie, which we had been told was the best place for faire du stop, hitchhiking, if you were headed south to the Mediterranean. Well, it was if you were a pretty young woman. We were two burly, bearded Americans, streaming sweat in the summer heat, made worse by traffic exhaust fumes. We stood out in the sun for several hours before a guy driving a soft-top Triumph Herald gave us a lift. He was English, Bernie Merth, a night desk man at Agence France Presse news agency. He drove us as far as Vézélé, a beautiful town we had never heard of, in the hills above Burgundy. We drank a lot of that heady wine. Too much. The next day, Bernie dropped us down the road in a town called Avalon, not far away, a good spot he assured us for continuing our hitch to the Med. Eight hours later, we called it quits and took the bus back to Vézelay. And there our luck changed. It was the 4th of July, and over wine we started chatting about America with a couple of French guys. In the days before mass tourism and 24-7 media, America was a place familiar but unknown. Pascal and Patrice were medical students. They offered to drive us as far as Castellan in the mountains, just above the Mediterranean, as they were planning on walking a section of the route Napoleon, the path Napoleon took upon his escape from Elba up to Paris. We spent the night in a cheap hotel in Castellan. Actually, almost all hotels were cheap then. The dollar exchange rate was absurdly favorable, and the cost of living in Europe, before the oil shock of 1973, put inflation into what was left of the post-war economy extremely low. 
I'm eliminating a lot to get to the point of this podcast, but somewhere in the middle of the days by the side of the road and sleeping on the beach just west of Cam, I had what can only be called a nervous breakdown. It might have been cumulative sleep deprivation jet lag in combination with some very nasty homemade drugs I had taken just before leaving Yellow Springs for my big adventure. That Kent State spring, I was living in a farmhouse off campus with a group of people who included a chemistry major who mixed batches of hallucinogens and some top-class speed in the science building's labs. I have no idea what was in that stuff, but it probably wasn't entirely good for me. In any case, I left down in the south at a rendezvous with the French guys, and I managed to get on a milk train back to Paris. I had no choice but to try and heal myself. My conversational French in those days wasn't bad, and during the hours and hours in the unair-conditioned compartment of the slow train, I took myself out of myself by speaking in another language. Searching for words and phrases was like being half-drowned and seeing just above the water's surface a person handing you a pole and trying to grab onto it. I arrived back in Paris and ended up at a hostel in Charentonne-Cole. It was in a monastery, not far from the site of the asylum, where the Marquis de Sade had been kept and where the action of the play Marat Sade unfolded. This seemed appropriate, given my mental condition. It was a Friday. I arrived after dinner had been served. I must have looked as wrecked as I felt inside. One of the young monks, don't know what order, they weren't wearing habits, took me to the kitchen and gave me a plate with a whole mackerel and some potatoes. Then one of the monks gave me his cell for the night. The monk, who had taken charge of me, explained they all thought I looked too unwell to be in the dormitory. The monk spoke to me softly. The timbre of his voice was suffused with the most basic human warmth and empathy. At a moment of total vulnerability, someone I didn't know, in a setting that a Jewish boy felt a bit awkward in, cross above the bed, on the wall of the kitchen, crosses everywhere, reached out and kept me from falling further. I slept for many hours, the first real sleep I had had in the week or so since arriving in France. I felt restored a bit and went up into town, found some people to hang out with in a bar at the bottom of the Rue Saint-Jacques, Le Petit Bar, and through them I met a girl. She was sixteen. I was nineteen. Her mother was English, her father Chinese, and she was being educated privately in Paris. She hung around Shakespeare and Company Bookshop, part of a small coterie of extremely attractive young women. The toothless owner, George Whitman, let have the run of the place. The 14th of July arrived, Bastille Day, and we went out. Dan had returned from the south, and we had moved in with Bernie at his place near Sevres, Babylon. We spent the late afternoon drinking, well, actually nursing drinks, not proper drinking, in Le Petit Bar. Some army pals of the owner, in full starched uniform, turned up after the parade for some real drinking. A young Arab picked a fight with a couple of them. They went outside. Didn't last long. One punch, and the young Arab was on the ground. He shouted a curse at the guy who had decked him. The soldier turned around and looked down quizzically. You want more? It was a genuine question rather than a threat. From flat on his back, the Arab spat a huge gobbet that hit the soldier in the face. A severe kicking ensued. The three of us decided to head out for some culture. 
walked, more like flowed, to the Comédie Française, I'm not sure I've ever been as carefree as I was on that walk. It was a long, glorious evening, virtually cloudless, the honeystones of the city burnished by the red-orange sunset. We bought cheap seats for whatever Moliere was being performed that night, a production long-jellied in aspect, unbelievably dull. We left at the interval and flowed along to the Place Bastille to see what was what. A riot was what was what, ritualized in the French style. There was no spark. It kicked off because the 14th of July is the perfect day for a riot at the Bastille, and the circumstances, two years after the events of 1968, Paris remained an armed camp. Vans with national police were stationed all over the city, ready to control any crowd that might form. Where the barricades came from, I don't know, but they went up faster than the scenic machinery erects them at the end of the first act of Les Mis. Cobblestones were dug out from the thin layer of tarmac, moist from July heat, around the Bastille Monument. They were flung towards the police. The police sent back volleys of tear gas. Two months earlier, I had been tear-gassed in front of the White House. If nothing else, I can claim to have been tear-gassed on two continents in 1970. A group of us ducked down a side street off the Place Bastille, the cops in full pursuit. I heard a shout and turned. A fellow had tripped and fallen. Around six cops had jacked him up and were wailing on him with their nightsticks. We ducked into Buffinger, a fin de siècle restaurant and brasserie. The waiter at the door in Maitre d' probably would have thrown down and die out, but, as I said, the young woman was really very pretty and sweet with it and no man in France would have been so ungallant. We waited out the storm, a very short one as it turned out, and joined the youthful throngs along the Rue Saint-Paul with war stories to tell as they headed back to the Latin Quarter for celebratory drinks. I spent a few days with that lovely young woman and then left Paris for more travels. I could happily have spent the whole summer with her, but I had in my head this ridiculous post-adolescent idea of myself as a lonely artist on a rocky, solitary path. I blame it on reading Nietzsche at an age before I could understand him. Anyway, back on the road, my troubles returned, but I had a better handle on them. I understood now that when you do the kind of traveling where you wake up and have no idea where you will sleep that night, or if you will even exchange a single word with a human being, and all form and routine are lost, and you can't buy your way out of your dilemmas, the highway blues will claim you. Summer over, I had the young woman's phone number in England, and I visited her at her parents' house in Stamford, Lincolnshire. Her mother was very upper-middle-class English. Her Chinese father spoke English in an unintelligible accent, and I never really heard the story of their relationship. I began my year of study at Harris Manchester College, Oxford, and thought about her a lot, and other girls, to be honest. One day I got a call from her asking if I would come to her wedding the coming weekend. She hoped I would because she was moving to Canada just after. I mean, she had just turned 17. Where the guy came from, I don't know. It really made no sense. But I couldn't make the wedding. I was playing lacrosse for the university that weekend. A few months later, I got a letter from Canada, the saddest letter you can imagine. She had made a terrible mistake, she admitted. She was completely alone and stuck living with the consequences. 
I was someone she felt she could tell about it, and now that she had finished writing the letter to me, she would make herself a cup of tea and put on some music she liked as her husband was out and she could have some private time. I wrote back, but she didn't write again. Postscript. As you can imagine, I have never forgotten about her, and I often wondered how her life turned out. There was a spark inside this young woman at sixteen years old, and I hoped it had not been extinguished. When the owner of Shakespeare and Company, George Whitman, died in 2011, I wrote an obituary that was syndicated in publications all over the world. I mentioned her in the hope she might see it and get in touch. Nothing. Then... About three years ago, through the FRDH website, I got an email from her. She had heard something I made for the BBC. We met in the West End of London and swapped life stories. Hers was much more interesting than mine. Here's her what happened next. She had a child, got divorced, supported herself and daughter as a waitress in nowhere British Columbia. At the same time, taught herself Mandarin, went to university... She was well into her twenties, met a good man, had more children, earned a doctorate, spent several decades teaching Chinese history at the University of Lincoln. It turns out she is intimately connected to modern Chinese history, as her grandfather was a prominent general who was, for a time, a liaison between the Mao and Chiang Kai-shek forces during World War II. We've met up a few times, got invited to her husband's 70th birthday party last year, I think our respective spouses don't quite get the connection. Perhaps you do, if you've ever been in a dark place, alone, in Paris on Bastille Day or elsewhere, and someone's light found you. You would never forget them either, and delight in their company half a century later. And that's all for this FRTH podcast. You can hear more, lots more, on more depressing topics at the website www.goldfarbpod.com and while you're there please make a donation people are doing it more and more to keep the podcasts coming thanks <laughs>